You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. World Talk Radio. In 2009, the world will recognize the 200th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, 16th President of the United States. The commemoration of that event, still several years away, has already begun. Today we feature commentary on the memory of Abraham Lincoln with a visit from President Lincoln himself on Civil War Talk Radio. and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Remember when you laughed during a business conference? You felt more energized, more alert, and more receptive to the message being delivered. Hi, I'm Russ Dolnack, and I make people laugh. And as a professional humorous speaker, I open up a morning conference session with a laugh or close off the day with a funny recap. It's it's just a one-of-a-kind experience. Visit RussIsFunny.com right now. Get an audience into it. You know, if they're laughing, it's paying big dividends. They're more relaxed, they're more creative, and if nothing else, a humorous speaker leads each and every one of them with a smile on their face. You need comedy. Custom, clean, clever comedy. Otherwise, your audience might just doze off. <laughs> just imagine, if you had to listen to hours of serious commentary without a break, come on, pack some upbeat energy into your next event. Humor works. Find me, Russ Dalnack, at russisfunny.com because, well, Russ's chubby.com was taken. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking on behalf of the university in any way, shape, or form. Having gotten the legal things out of the way, today we will be talking about perhaps the most famous lawyer in history and most famous president, Abraham Lincoln. The show is being produced in the week of Lincoln's birthday in 2006, and as at any time you might be listening to it in the next uh, months or even years, the hoopla leading up to the 200th anniversary of Lincoln's birth in 2009 will only get louder and more forceful. We will have a guest along shortly with whom we'll talk about the commemoration of Lincoln, but I thought I would start by sharing 
uh, my own reactions to a recent visit to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield, Illinois. It is a remarkable place, one that I strongly recommend anyone listening to this show visit if you get any kind of remote chance to see. It is different from traditional history museums, and in some ways it, it, is, it is quite hard to put my finger on it. Uh, it. It will overwhelm you with sensations, with sounds and effects, with spectacular technology that will hold the interest of anyone you go to the museum with. You may be the only person the least bit interested in the past, but your friends and family will be captivated by the, the dramatic effects they see. As far as the history itself, there's nothing grossly inaccurate in the presentation. Uh, there's always room for interpretation in any historical presentation. It does strike me that the larger question is whether the technology succeeds in making the history come to life or in overwhelming the history. And I have to say that, as speaking as somebody who has practiced history in a museum setting and helped design uh, the Lincoln exhibit at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, it seems to me that there must have been, as there always are in these circumstances, uh, struggles, sometimes fierce ones, between the people who design exhibits, the people who fund exhibits, the people who advertise the exhibits, and, uh, of course, the historians who actually come up with the, the history behind the exhibits. All these constituencies have different interests. They all have different things they want to accomplish. And it's very possible, it seems to me, that the historians did not win every battle in the ideas that went into the museum in Springfield. If you check in the archives of this show back, I think it was November 2004 or December, you'll find an interview with John Y. Simon, history professor at Southern Illinois University. Uh, professor Simon is uncompromising in his denunciation of the museum. He didn't like it before it opened, and now that it is open, he doesn't like it any better. Listen to that for one very strong view of what's wrong with the exhibit in one scholar's view. As I said at that time, and we'll say again, I don't agree fully with John Y. Simon's view that this museum is uh, oh, a travesty, uh, to use one of his milder words. But it does leave a lingering hint that the people behind it, not the historians, not uh, Thomas Schwartz, not the other uh, history-minded people in, in the organization, but the exhibit designers, the creative people, the technology people, there, there's a feeling that they don't quite think history is good enough to stand on its own two feet as an interesting subject. And thus it requires, not, not just could use, but absolutely requires to be uh, brought up, uh, to, to be dressed up, to be uh, made more acceptable to the general public through technology, through presentation. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I think certainly those of us, uh, the, those listening to this show, obviously are interested in history or you wouldn't be here in the first place. And there's a fair number of you. 
And there's a large number who go to Barnes and Noble and frequent the history section, or go to uh, Borders Books, or go online to Amazon and get all the history books uh, before they get the bestsellers. The incredible lines I saw uh, of people waiting to have Doris Kearns Goodwin sign her latest book, uh, and we hope to have her on the show before too long, uh, to have her sign a book, the lines were enormous. There are many people uh, who are in Springfield to see history, not to see entertainment. And I'm not sure that they weren't sold short a little bit by the people producing the, the aesthetic end of the design. But let me repeat what I said originally. If you're anywhere near Springfield, Illinois, you must go see the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum and come up with your own conclusions. Well, enough from me. I believe we have on the line, if I'm not mistaken, as our guest today, the 16th President of the United States himself, Abraham Lincoln. Mr. President, are you there? Well, yes, Doctor. I uh, am amazed at the uh, changes that the telegraph office had to go through to uh, accommodate you, but I'm here. Well, it's wonderful. What hath God wrought, we might ask, and that instead of dots and dashes, we are able to communicate by actual voice. It is uh, an honor to have you here. Let me uh, ask, as I do with most of my guests, a bit about your background. Uh, what, uh, where, where did you come from, and, and uh, how did you uh, reach your present uh, high status? Well, I can tell you, you know, in a very short sentence. I one time read a poem entitled uh, "Gray's Elegy in a Country Churchyard," and there was a spot in there that reminded me much of my background, and it it referred to the short and simple annals of the poor. <laughs> and I was raised to farm work in Kentucky, and my father taught me to do it. He just never taught me to like it. And uh, so when I finally got my majority, came of age, uh, I was reared up in Indiana, where we continued on in the same vein, and uh, our labors largely had to do with opening a farm in the forest, but ultimately we were moved to Illinois the year I got my majority, and at the tender age of 21, I entered into the prairie state and remained for about a year with my father and stepmother to help them get settled after the first hard winter there. But uh, after that, I was on my own. So your education, uh, was there time to go to school and all this? By littles, as we used to say. And I found my education largely on my own, um, a little bit. I attended school in five terms, I suppose you could call them, um, some shorter, some longer, but the sum total of all of them <laughs> didn't even come to a single year. So what advance I got on that little bit, I, I had to acquire on my own, but uh, I am uh, still acquiring as much as I can. You You'll read in some of the Democratic newspapers that I know absolutely nothing, and uh, in many cases that's true. Now, you uh, you entered politics uh, also at an early age. Uh, what's your political, what has been the path for your political career? 
Well, I've always been a Whig in politics, and uh, for some of those who are new to the country, we have so many immigrants now, the, the Whig Party is no longer, but we were uh, especially popular in, in the West um, because we were the progressive party. The Democrats were, in those days, more interested in retaining the old forms and keeping um, the central government um, at bay. And we Whigs felt that there were certain responsibilities of government that um, uh, we wanted to see implemented uh, in the way of improvements. So we had no scruple about um, using uh, federal money for road or canal building and, and things in which all of the states were to participate ultimately. Uh, but the Democrats did their best to uh, keep those projects um, from passing. And uh, they, the old uh, Jackson Democrats believed that uh, national banking and borrowing on such a grand scale should not be allowed. So that was the primary contest between the parties for the larger part of my political career until the war with Mexico. Now there, again, uh, I, I took a, a position that wasn't entirely popular, um, but I've, I felt that much of that um, was a was got off for political effect and the acquisition of those southwestern lands from Mexico uh, I could have just as soon uh, passed on but um, I supported the war but I didn't believe that it was a just war and there was some misunderstanding over that in Illinois and I I had to come back to a very um, disgruntled uh, uh, constituency after my short term in Congress I went to Congress, uh, well, frankly, after the war was already concluded, but but um, we uh, we did what we could to support the troops. So, 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 in, in your view, the war was was begun on false pretenses, uh, well, but you still voted to support the troops. Precisely, if if we send troops onto Mexican uh, soil to defend Americans. Um, they're still on Mexican soil, and uh, but I couldn't get the president, it was Polk at the time, to admit the exact place where the war commenced, and, and that that was the deciding factor, um, and and so much of it hangs on uh, on who started it. Just as this this war has, I went to great lengths to make it impossible for people to accuse me of starting this present war and yet look at the newspapers they in spite of all of those efforts have said this is Lincoln's war <laughs> so yeah well hope, hopefully that uh, we put that behind us we'll never again have a the United States engaged in a war on false pretenses that well, one radically supports nonetheless um, uh, but leaving that aside, the, uh, the this present war you mentioned, uh, of course, you as commander in chief bear a great deal of responsibility for the Union war effort. Uh, I've always wanted to ask this: why, why did you keep George McClellan around for so long? 
Well, what, what did you think well, of that guy? You say if you make a bad par- bargain, hug it all the closer. <laughs> ah, that's an old. <laughs> and uh, there's some truth to that. I I don't believe that George Brenton McClellan was an unpatriotic man, or that he was in fact a copperhead supporting the rebel cause while acting like he was for the Union cause. But nonetheless, um, he certainly had a terrible case of the slows. But sometimes you, you don't always get a choice between that which is wholly good and that which is wholly bad. You have to settle for something in between. And I am not a military man. And when I dabble in military affairs, I usually get my fingers burned. But I, I had to make some decisions, and, and they had to be based on what I knew to be the case. And, Well, Mr. President, let me interrupt you for a moment. We're going to take a short break here on Civil War Talk Radio as the music comes up. We'll come back in just about a minute or so with a few further questions for Abraham Lincoln, 16th President of the United States, and then perhaps uh, go a little bit uh, beyond that with our, our guest today. We'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 